today on Edge Effects. There are so many prisons with agriculture of some kind. You know, there's at least 660 prisons with agriculture of some kind. This is a majority of adult state-run prisons in the United States. Looking at prison agriculture as both inheriting this legacy of racial capitalism, but also it draws our attention to how is prison agriculture reproducing racial capitalism. Kristen Billings, an EdgeFX editor and PhD student in the Department of Community and Environmental Sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, speaks with Dr. Carrie Chenault, an assistant professor of geography at Colorado State University, and Dr. Josh Sabika, an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Colorado State University. They are also the co-director and director of the Prison Agriculture Lab and co-creators of Growing Chains, a GIS story map on the history of prison agriculture and racial capitalism in the United States. So the two of you study and are committed to food justice. But almost everybody, right, has this intimate connection to food. I was wondering how your personal experiences or personal relationships have led to your work on food justice. So my personal experiences with food justice really begin in many respects as a college student. During college, I was involved in a lot of food labor organizing. So specifically doing solidarity work with Coalition of Immokalee Workers, working with United Students Against Sweatshops, and in particular, their Killer Coke campaign, as well as supporting on-campus cafeteria workers. But over the years, I also started to learn about urban agriculture and started to participate in urban agriculture work in the San Francisco Bay Area. And through that, was connected with folks doing various kinds of food justice work. And that led me to working with Planting Justice, which is an Oakland-based food justice organization and uh, sat on their board of directors for a really long time. And so those avenues really opened up my eyes to a whole range of connections between inequality and the food system and the different avenues through which it's possible to make change in the food system. And really ever since then, I've been involved in lots of other kinds of organizing work at these kinds of intersections, but that's really where it starts. For me, I think really drawing on starting food justice with personal experiences of precarity and thinking about that relationship of things like food insecurity, housing insecurity, and what that means starting from there as a place of understanding what's going on to then push back against it and fight it and build something else. So those are really personal experiences for me as a teenager, as a young adult. And eventually, I went to graduate school and decided to study sustainable agriculture. And I also, in that realm, got really involved with community agriculture, gardening, directly working with low income and working with people who are experiencing homelessness and just trying to figure out how food and agriculture could be used as a way to address some of those broader systemic injustices. I also think at the same time, like approaching food justice, yeah, it is about precarity and really understanding that need for survivability, understanding that need that, you know, everyone needs food, everyone needs a house, everyone needs to meet these basic needs. But then also thinking about food justice in terms of 
joy in terms of connection and the relationships that you can experience through food and really the embodiment that goes with it. And doing that in a way that's not romanticized, but that is truly grounded in this deep understanding of experiences of precarity. I want to talk about the Prison Agriculture Lab. So the two of you co-direct the Prison Agriculture Lab at Colorado State University. Excuse my really bad pun, but what planted the seed for this lab? Could you describe a little bit about its history and its mission? So in some respects, my interest in these connections between food and carcerality go back to some of my work with planting justice and in in particular working alongside formerly incarcerated people doing food justice work and doing urban agriculture work and really seeing the ways in which food can be a tool to disrupt the prison pipeline and it can be a tool for restorative justice and community building and really creativity in many respects. But I had a lot of nagging questions more fundamentally about what's going on in the American prison system And as a result of hearing so many stories from formerly incarcerated folks, particularly related to things around prison slavery and the labor exploitation that is really endemic to the prison system, what did food and agricultural systems more broadly look like? That led me then to, once I had the time and space, to to start some new projects. I got some support internally here at Colorado State University to begin investigating where is prison agriculture taking place? What's taking place? Why is it taking place? And so that was in uh, 2019 is, is when this started. And then had the incredible luck to meet Carrie and start working together alongside lots of graduate students to begin pursuing these sets of questions. Relating this to then the Growing Change story map that you released earlier this year, And this is a distillation of the first ever nationwide study of prison agriculture, which is, of course, really impressive. It's really important and a super valuable resource. How did this idea for a survey looking at the entire nation, how did that start? Really simply, I I could never find any information on everything that's going on in American prisons as it pertains to food and agriculture. (laughs) And all I could find were you know, anecdotes and news stories and um, tidbits here and there, but nothing really systematic. And as, as a sociologist, that's particularly attentive to institutions and structures and organizations and how things all fit together at that kind of scale. I was just motivated to try to figure out what was going on more systematically in the U.S. It was really just kind of a nagging curiosity and also an obvious gap. In terms of getting started on this project, one thing became abundantly clear to us immediately, and that is that getting data like on any sort of broad scale, systematic across the prison system is incredibly challenging. The prison system gives us the data that they want us to see. We get statistics, we get official reports, we get them when they choose to report them. But going the other direction, seeking out certain types of data, it's just really, really difficult. And I think as a geographer, that speaks to the ways that the relationship between carceral space, the prison itself, and then 
everyone else outside of prison, how that boundary is meant to be there and how it functions. And I think this lack of data and difficulty of seeing inside the prison system is demonstrative of that. And I also think that it is fundamental to the mission of the Prison Agriculture Lab, too. You know, a big part of our work is trying to visibilize spaces that are designed to be invisibilized. And of course, there's the the whole invisibilization of rural spaces and that kind of connection between invisibilization of carceral institutions due to their location in rural spaces. Were there any findings that came out of this work that struck you or were surprising to you? I mean, one of the big ones for me is just the fact that there are so many prisons with agriculture of some kind. You know, there's at least 660 prisons with agriculture of some kind. This is a majority of adult state-run prisons in the United States. That in and of itself was really eye-opening. The other piece for me, though, was the fact that there's pretty much every kind of type of agriculture in every region of the country, more or less. Now, granted, there are geographic differences and our work seeks to explore some of that. But that was the other, I think, important piece that these practices were not isolated, for example, strictly to the South, that there's this overdetermination in the American imagination about convict leasing and prison slavery being sort of a Southern institution. The, the reality is that these things are widespread. And I think it's important to shed a light on the more endemic nature of agriculture to the prison system. Something that really struck us through our findings were just the overlaps in what we call drivers of prison agriculture. Understanding the justifications or goals that the prison system itself gives for taking on agriculture in their prisons. Often you might hear a narrative that prison farm labor, it's exploitative, states are profiting off of people. And yes, financial drivers are definitely a part of the picture across the country in all regions, like Josh said. But at the same time, it was really fascinating to see this intermixing of drivers, the ways that prisons use financial drivers coupled with what we call more reparative drivers things that are like community service oriented or like environmental sustainability, green oriented, or on the other hand, vocational and educational types of drivers. And, and just this complex intermixing that we saw across the country that we saw in Georgia, that we saw in Washington state, really coast to coast and everywhere in between. And in the project, you identify racial capitalist drivers of this system. And you also write that the conditions of present day agriculture should be understood within the realities of racial capitalism. And I think racial capitalism is a concept that people are using a lot more. But I'm wondering if you could explain why you think racial capitalism is so vital to understanding the food system in the U.S. So I think at a, a very like broad level, racial capitalism, this idea that we talk about that capitalism was never not racist, that racism isn't just a byproduct, but is part and parcel to the structuring of society, that it is a structuring logic that undergirds both this idea of organized exploitation that occurs in prisons, but also organized abandonment that is, again, constitutive of the prison system along these ethno-racial hierarchies. 
I think that that really draws our attention again, if we're getting away from these binaries, north, south of exploitative, rehabilitative farming and food systems. I think it really just points us into looking at prison agriculture as both inheriting this legacy of racial capitalism, but also it draws our attention to how is prison agriculture reproducing racial capitalism. And you can see that in the types of drivers, again, these objectives or justifications that prisons are giving, such as vocational training, this idea that you are rehabilitating people to join the workforce. And we ask this question, rehabilitating to what? What types of jobs? Well, jobs in the food and agricultural system, as we know, are very much driven along these ordering hierarchies of race, gender, and class inequalities. And even historically speaking, if we're talking about the food system as a racial capitalist system, or another way to say it maybe is racial capitalism structures the food system, we see that historically from the moment of European contact, for example, here in what's now the United States and North America, where you have mass dispossession of indigenous people all over the continent, as well as the introduction of stolen people who were then enslaved in a plantation system in the South, and the expendability of people racialized as other, and the way in which that then props up white agriculture, white food systems, and white power, ultimately, in the development of this country. And, and that's really part and parcel for then what happens, as Carrie pointed out, in the prison system, that agriculture in the prison system is just one more instantiation of the way the food system and agricultural systems in the U.S. have always been operating. And then on the back end, this sort of ideological power that prison agriculture has to, to essentially place people in what white and powerful entities consider to be their appropriate place. That power to place people through language and through the carceral system shapes people's economic opportunities through these kinds of hierarchies. I became really interested in this connection between the carceral state and agriculture when I was doing work on dairy organizing in upstate New York and thinking about immigration and the way racial capitalism shapes immigrants' vulnerability to detention and to state surveillance and violence. And there's just so much here when we think about the way racial capitalism operates or structures, as you said, the food system in the United States. So the prison system in the U.S. is extremely costly, right? It, it costs so much money. I'm wondering how those extremely high costs of prisons operate with or interact with prison agriculture. What's the relationship? Both on paper and in practice, much of the intention of prison agriculture is cost reduction. You'll see that in state policies and you'll see that in the ways that they promote the benefits of having agriculture in prisons. And so reducing costs by, you know, producing food, whether directly to feed incarcerated individuals or in some cases as to sell directly to other markets as a way to generate revenues and, and reduce the overall cost of the system to the public. I also would argue that the extremely high costs are also 
addressed through the deduction of the wages by the state, by the prison system. And so say, for instance, if you're having someone earn you know, a few dollars an hour in like cases where maybe they're even being contracted out to private corporations to do agri-food work. The states will often find ways of deducting wages to compensate for the very cost of the person being incarcerated. I mean, one of the other ones that I think a lot about and I think is important to, to name is the fact that the work that incarcerated people do on the inside maintains the prison system itself that the prison system is essentially a giant public works program and employs tens of thousands of people. And so the idea that it's just corporations that are profiteering off of the system fails to account for the way in which the state itself profits off of the system. And so the way that agriculture intersects with that, thinking historically, but also in the current moment, these agricultural systems within prisons really built the American prison system, or at least set a lot of the initial foundation for making it possible. And since then, agricultural operations are less central than they once were, but nevertheless are part of a larger suite of labor activities within the prison system that keep it all going. It's this punitive logic that, you know, if you get incarcerated, it's your fault, and you owe a debt to society and you have to pay your way. And part of paying your way is working in the kitchen, doing laundry, growing food to feed each other, and so on. That's one of the pieces I just want to regularly come back to is pushing people to think about the many different entities, and particularly the state that profits from these systems. And I think to add on to that idea, maybe going back to Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work and understanding the prison as this carceral fix. This is like idea of the spatial fix that's really part of a solution to these multiple ongoing crises of capitalism. I think when you're looking at it from that perspective, that really speaks to the point that Josh just said about it's not just corporations that are benefiting, but the, the prison is really providing this fix to society as a whole and at the cost of the premature death of people of color, of poor people, of gender nonconforming people. This relates really interestingly to the way that we've seen rehabilitative horticultural programs kind of emerge across the country. So, for example, we have New York's notorious Rikers Island that has this horticulture program, a garden and these programs, they claim to provide therapeutic value as well as some of the vocational training. And you also pose this in the story map in your work. How do we understand exploitation and rehabilitation together? How do you think about this relationship or this tension? One of the first places that we begin is with this question of exploitation for whom and rehabilitate to what. And when you start to ask these questions, you can kind of peel back the layers for why these kinds of programs exist to begin with. And from our perspective, and in some of the work that we've done, there's carceral legitimation that's going on through using language like rehabilitation, through claiming that there's vocational benefits, through providing education, 
in, in the eyes of the public and in the eyes of a lot of politicians, this kind of reformist orientation in the prison system makes it so that the prison system can continue to operate. We see it more as this disciplinary language, you know, that it shapes carceral subjects in certain respects. Now, this is not to say that there are not individual benefits for people who are engaged in these kinds of gardens and programs, because truth be told, it likely is better to be in a warm greenhouse in the winter than locked up in a cage. And I've heard this from incarcerated folks and formerly incarcerated folks. Like I know that there are those individual benefits, but we are working to sort of take a step back and look more structurally at what's the purpose behind this kind of framing on the part of the prison system. I'll echo everything Josh said. I also, to add on to that slightly, we're looking at exploitation and rehabilitation as these discourses that are coming in throughout history, throughout the prison system, and perhaps gaining or waning in popularity and having resonance with different segments of the population and almost code switching as needed, being able to, in one context, frame certain types of agriculture in one way and in another context, maybe with a different audience or maybe just in a different way, representing it as something else. You could see that, for instance, in the ways that prison labor more generally, but also prison agriculture is written into the laws of many states. There are states that do have explicit laws about that form of labor and about what prison agriculture or farming does for the state, for the prison system. But then also, you know, those same states will work with, say, nonprofit organizations that are doing more of these hands-on gardening and get your hands in the soil and I would say that these discourses are operating simultaneously and together and reinforcing each other as they are reinforcing the prison system. Thinking a little bit about the format of the story map, I'm wondering why you decided on using a story map and what did it offer you? So I will say that the story map is one of many creative modes that we've already employed and that we're hoping to do even more of that. Really for us, the story map itself and, and all of these other creative platforms are ways to create immersive audio and visual experiences. I almost think of the story map in terms of mobility, what it means you could almost travel in space and in time in these sites. Like we have the timelines, you can travel through the history of prison agriculture. And then through the mapping itself, like we have map tours in the story maps, and you can travel to different sites. And I think it is a more immersive way to engage with and to think about prison agriculture beyond just reading a, a journal article or just beyond reading a report with statistics. So I think it's great in the classroom. I'm teaching geography of farming systems class this semester. So I've had students use the story map, but they're also creating story maps in the class, doing their own case studies of prison agriculture. So I think that's really exciting to connect with students that way, but also broader audiences, obviously. I mean, one of the goals of the Prison Agriculture Lab is not just to be an academic space, to, but also to really be this scholar activist space where we're connecting more broadly. And so I think things like the story map, like other GIS mapping, we've done like a satellite image gallery, and I hope to employ all sorts of 
creative needs. I think being even a part of this podcast today really helps the lab advance that mission. What are some of the next steps for the lab and generally what you hope comes out of this research? I think one of the next directions, one of the most important next directions is to be building a lot more analysis and creative platforms with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. We began at this really macro level to map essentially what was going on. And now that we have a much clearer sense of that, getting stories and building, if it makes sense, or we have the right formations and people campaigns related to things like ending prison slavery. You know, one of the interesting moments that we sort of find ourselves in is this effort nationwide to get rid of the exception clause in the 13th Amendment. This is happening at a statewide level. For example, here in Colorado, we passed Amendment A that removed that from the state constitution. And there's something about this agrarian imaginary that's rooted somewhat in these racist histories, right? Particularly like chattel slavery and the plantation system. And so there's something generative too about using prison agriculture as a lens to see more broadly what's happening in the prison system and to organize for abolitionist goals and ends. And at a minimum, to create new narrative and discourse and community to do and act and think differently. So what that looks like, honestly, as a collaborative space, we haven't always sought to direct and define all of that, but rather find opportunities to build with others and do things in kind of an open fashion. So for anybody listening, reach out because we would be happy to think through and build whatever ideas come your way. We're going to continue this work of pulling together these data sets nationwide where we can too, because this is still a huge task that needs to continue. A lot of what we're trying to do is not only understand where and why prison agriculture is happening, but then contextualize it within its social and political and ecological context, uh, really understanding this broader landscape. And so I think a lot of our data projects are just pulling existing data and curating it and trying to make it relevant to understand and really dig into and investigate prison agriculture. And then, of course, we have all of these creative projects that can communicate it. So that's really something I'm excited to work on, too. I am wondering about this connection between college campuses and prison agriculture. So here in Madison in 2020, a student circulated a petition to stop UW system sourcing from prison dairy farms. This is something that is not unique, of course, to UW-Madison. This is a problem, this connection between campuses and food and incarceration. It's a problem across the country. So I guess as professors, as researchers working in this kind of context, where do you see higher education fitting into this problem? I love this question. many levels. I know. I love this question so much. Yeah, there's a lot of levels. (laughs) I think at like the really big, broad, conceptual level, the very disciplinary logics, the colonizing and racist legacies of the university, right, persist into the present. So I think that there's a lot of parallels between the history of prisons and the history of the university and how the university operates and what it does. My students always are very clear that they see campuses as carceral spaces. 
structurally and the way that there are limited resources for students of color, the ways that our pedagogies and the lessons that are taught at universities more often than not reinforce the status quo, the very policing and surveillance that happens at universities. There are great, you know, groups obviously like Cops Off Campus that are challenging this police surveillance on campus. I also think one could talk about the level of institutional purchasing, like understanding the financial transactions that happen at universities. College campuses are certainly fitting into the problem, but I would also say that they're fitting into the solution. I mean, I am, again, inspired by students and the work that they're wanting, you know, bringing to us and saying, we want classrooms that talk about abolition. We want to do research projects with the prison agriculture lab or in other spaces that are doing this kind of engaged and activist scholar work. I think it's both. Yeah, and I would really like to uplift a a couple of really specific examples that show a lot of student power and community power to hold universities accountable for the ways in which their food and agricultural systems rely on incarcerated labor or are entangled in carceral institutions. So at the University of Florida, there was the case of a campaign to get the university to cut its contracts with the Florida Department of Corrections. The university was using prison labor at their agricultural experiment stations for decades. Agricultural science being subsidized on the back of free labor. There was a campaign and a huge coalition of students that managed to get the university to cut those contracts. That was a really important win. And I think a lot of people should should look to that for some inspiration. And then the other one is thinking about food service. One of the largest companies that provides food to college campuses is Aramark. And Aramark is deeply entangled in carceral institutions. It's one of the major providers of prison food and has been embroiled in many scandals around the country as it pertains to the quality of the food, the use of prison labor. And so we should be asking as people working in or students in universities, how are these everyday mundane goods that we can find on campus entangled in carceral institutions and how do we cut those ties? I know there's been a lot of organizing against Sodexo and so many cool things that go on on campuses, you know, students really resisting. That's amazing. To close out the conversation and thinking about where we can see inspiration, where we can see people organizing and fighting for something that's better. You mentioned Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and she's often quoted, abolition is about presence, right? It's not about absence. It's about building life-affirming institutions. In the story map at the end, you point to this example of an organization, Solitary Gardens, and this effort to marry a kind of reparative work within the carceral system with the work of envisioning a world without prisons. This speaks to this idea of non-reformist reforms. I'm wondering for the two of you, what does presence look like in an abolitionist food system? What do abolitionist food futures look like and how might we arrive there? A huge, huge question and also a simple one. I think we do all know what it looks like. If Ruth Wilson Gilmore and just the broader field of Black geographies teach us anything, it's this constant reminder of the historical present. 
we know with abolition that we've inherited this legacy of dispossession and displacement. And that the opposite of that, that healing, that connection, the solutions are, it's pretty simple. Like this question that we ask a lot, um, Josh and I talk to each other and we ask this simple question of why is it that, you know, if gardens are great and if getting out in the soil and, and, and growing food together, eating food together are great, why is it that it has to take place within carceral structures? Why do carceral structures exist? Can't we bring that out of the prison system and bring it out of the carceral mindset more largely? But I think that that is a matter of repair, right? That we have to repair those legacies of dispossession, repair those legacies of displacement. These are big, big, tough questions that have to happen at a large scale. But I also do think that they're everyday and embodied kinds of questions that we can do through just building direct relationships and really establishing connections of care in this deep abolitionist sense of the word. Yeah, I'm kind of just thinking about on a real simple level, you know, a lot of the food system has been built through exploitation, through demarcation, through dispossession, and through assigning to certain groups the hardest work and not valuing that work and not valuing the land on which it takes place. And so for me, in many respects, like abolitionist food futures really begin with revaluing our relationship to food and the land and revaluing the people that do that work and the ecosystems that make it all possible. And it's a care ethic that's really important for there to even be abolition. Like if abolition is about presence and world making and world building, then we have to model what these food and agricultural systems look like. And we have to model the relationships that don't operate on these same divisive logics, but that instead operate on logics that care for and respect the diversity of what it means to be human, but also include all of these visions and kind of hold them in tension. I think the alternative has been to really superimpose particular kinds of models and visions. And through that has created a lot of harm and trauma. There's a lot of unlearning that actually needs to happen as well. So it's a political project that is also a consciousness level raising project that we have to understand and we also have to act really differently. And I don't think anybody has all the answers and I don't think we need to have all the answers. Working towards this vision, it's about the process and a commitment to the process, knowing that we're unlikely to see its completion in our lifetimes and maybe for generations. If it took us hundreds of years to get to this place, it's likely going to take hundreds of years to get out of this place or to get to a new place is maybe another way to think about it. I like to operate from that principle of let's keep working and correcting as need be and see where it gets us. I love that. It reminds me of, again, Ruth Wilson Gilmore saying abolition is a method. It's not an end goal. We're always seeking to make connections and building out the network of the lab. I just hope that this connection that we've made with you, right, with EdgeFX, that this is just the beginning, not just a one-time thing. And so even outside of this podcast, I hope that you'll continue reaching out to us and finding ways to enact these futures together. I really mean that. Well, I'm so grateful to both of you. Your work is so amazing. And I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Kristen. Kristen. 
That was Kristen Billings in conversation with Carrie Chenault and Josh Sabika. Kristen is an EdgeFX editor and PhD student in the Department of Community and Environmental Sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Carrie is an assistant professor of geography at Colorado State University. Josh is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Colorado State University. They are co-director and director of the Prison Agriculture Lab and co-creators of Growing Chains. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Kristen Billings and me, Bree Meyer. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to Edge Effects, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review, or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeEffectsMag, or find us online at edgeeffects.net.